Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has visited Jamaica on the last stop of his first diplomatic tour of the year. What has been achieved during this trip? The European Union's top diplomat has accused Israel of funding Hamas. What has led to this statement? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the 2024 presidential race and endorsed Donald Trump. How will this affect the New Hampshire primary? Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China will support Jamaica's efforts to play a bigger role in world affairs. Wang Yi made the remarks while meeting with Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Honus in Kingston. Wang Yi said China looks forward to strengthening the alignment of development strategies with Jamaica. This includes expanding cooperation and maintaining close people-to-people exchanges. Honus hailed China for supporting Jamaica's economic development and improving people's livelihood. He said Jamaica will continue to firmly adhere to the One China policy. Alastair Baverstock reports. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was received on Saturday morning by Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness. We are final to celebrate 51 years of diplomatic relationship between our two countries. And we are very proud that Jamaica was the first country to give English speaking carriers to recognize the one China policy. Following his meeting with the Prime Minister, it was on to Jamaica's foreign ministry, where the two countries' top diplomats held a more in-depth discussion on bilateral cooperation. In particular, Jamaica's Foreign Minister Kamina Johnson-Smith expressed her thanks for China's solidarity during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when tourism, a major economic driver to this Caribbean island, dropped off almost entirely. Once more, on behalf of the people and government of Jamaica, for the sincere appreciation for the unwavering commitment of China to the continued development of Jamaica and explore ways to deepen the already strong relationship. At a meeting held in a foreign ministry building built by Chinese engineers, Minister Wang Yi was complimentary to the government of one of its most valued partners in the Caribbean region. He told his Jamaican counterpart of his belief that the brand new building on Kingston's seafront has become a symbol of China-Jamaican relations and that inside its walls the two countries would continue to face new challenges and create new opportunities together. For Jamaica's Chinese community, they see the diplomatic visit as an opportunity for this developing Caribbean nation to learn the lessons its Asian partner can teach. What we need to do in Jamaica is to try to emulate the development strategy that was adopted by China. It's about peaceful development and also to create win-win relationship to realize that dream. Following more than 50 years of diplomatic relations and five years of strategic partnership, China and Jamaica have set the tone with this diplomatic visit for their relations going forward into 2024 and beyond. That is Alistair Baberstock reporting. Jamaica is the last stop of Foreign Minister Wang Yi's first diplomatic tour of this year. The tour also included four African countries and Brazil. For more, we are now joined by Jiang Shixue, Distinguished Professor at the College of International Relations at Sichuan International Studies University. 
What do you make of the significance of Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit to the two Latin American countries following his trip to Africa? Normally,、uh, Chinese foreign minister would go to Africa in the、uh, beginning of each New Year, and this time,、uh, Mr. Wang Yi goes to Latin America,、uh, visiting Brazil and Jamaica, and it's also the、uh, the first、uh, trip. To Latin America in the beginning of the new year. That's、uh, very important. It also means that Latin America is important in China's、uh, foreign policy. Yes, and and during his meeting with Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Honus, Wang Yi says China looks forward to strengthening the alignment of development strategies with Jamaica. So, what specific areas do you see potential for、uh, cooperation in? Well,、uh, you know, China is very big and Jamaica is is very small, but still, I believe that there are some kind of、uh, important areas of cooperation between the two sides. Jamaica's economy is not well developed. Its、uh, industrialization is not well developed. Its、uh, infrastructure is not so good. So I think、uh, China can help、uh, Jamaica to improve、uh, such as、uh, this kind of infrastructures, or helping Jamaica to push forward the industrialization. And、uh, at the same time, I think、uh, Jamaica and China can also cooperate in international trade. You know, Chinese people love to drink coffee、uh, nowadays, and、uh, Jamaica is well known for its blue. Mountain coffee,、uh, very nice, high quality, and also Jamaica produces a kind of a drink called rum. I think Chinese people would love to drink、uh, rum. As you know, China's market is very big, so、uh, let's hope that in the near future we we can drink more Blue Mountain coffee and、uh, rum and other kinds of things. Uh, I went to Jamaica once, and、uh, you know it, its scenery is so、uh, so beautiful. If possible, I think、uh, Chinese tourists can、uh, go there, visit uh, this uh, beautiful Caribbean countries, and、uh, can also visit uh, uh, other Caribbean countries because Caribbean countries, including Jamaica, are well known for several S: sea, sand, sunshine, and all kinds of things. Uh, the beach is very nice,、uh, so I, I I believe Chinese tourists love to go, and the people from Jamaica or other Caribbean countries can also come to China to enjoy the beautiful sceneries in China. Yes, and as we know, Jamaica was one of the first Caribbean countries to join China's Belt and Road Initiative. So, how has the cooperation under the Belt and Road Framework benefited both sides? Yes, there are. Several、uh, important projects which have benefited from this Belt Road Initiative. There's a very nice highway which is already in use. It can facilitate the、uh, Jamaican people to to travel on the island. And now, as far as I know,、uh, there's a Chinese company which is discussing、uh, a Jamaican. Government uh, to uh, improve its、uh, infrastructures, road system in its uh, second uh, biggest city called Montego Bay. I, I believe in a few years, people over there will enjoy better road system. So lots of、uh, 
opportunities, uh, infrastructures, trade, all kinds of things. Yeah, and, and Wang Yi said China respects Jamaica in choosing a system with its own characteristics and supporting the country safeguarding sovereignty, independence, and national dignity. What do you make of this statement? You know, in the 1970s, Jamaica experimented a, a political system called the democratic socialism for around uh, one decade or so. Then it uh, abandoned this kind of political system and then uh, started to adopt an, uh, a different kind of political system. Well, Jamaica is a Caribbean nation and uh, it was a British colony. So no matter a country is big or small, so China never interferes in its domestic affairs. So China respects people of Jamaica to make their own choice. Somebody say Jamaica wants to say goodbye to the Commonwealth, uh, wants to have its own uh, political system, because nowadays it is in the Commonwealth system. The British king is, is its national leader. Well, it's, it's up to you. So China will never interfere in your domestic affairs. I, I think uh, China can, can respect whatever choice people in Jamaica make. Yes, and Wang Yi also says China will support Jamaica to play a bigger role in world affairs. And he also emphasized that China was committed to the equality of countries, regardless of size and the democratization of international relations. How do we understand this? The U.S., along with its uh, Western allies, have been uh, arguing that uh, there should be a kind of a rules-based international order. So by saying rules-based, whose rules? It's the uh, American rules. So people from the uh, Global South or people from the developing countries just wish to have uh, an international order based on international laws. Okay. So I think uh, China and Jamaica or other Caribbean countries can cooperate to build a new international order based on international laws. Okay. This is uh, one aspect of cooperation on the global stage. And also China and Jamaica can cooperate uh, in other areas of global governance, because Jamaica is a kind of island nation. It's quite concerned about the climate change and the rise of the sea level. So China can respect Jamaica's ideal to cooperate in many, many ways in terms of climate change and other kinds of things. So lots of things, apart from bilateral, there are also multilateral areas as far as uh, the two countries are concerned. Lots of uh, common ground, lots of common consensus uh, regarding uh, their roles for the promotion of world peace and the development. And what's your takeaway from Wang Yi's trip to Brazil, where the two countries pledged to build another golden 50 years of bilateral ties? We, we often say China is the uh, is the largest developing country in the world, and uh, Brazil is the largest developing country in the Western Hemisphere. There are lots of uh, areas of cooperation over the past several decades. 
the political, economic, people to people exchanges, as well as on the multilateral stage. Uh, you know, Brazil is the largest uh, trade partner for China in Latin America. China, China's economy has benefited a lot from purchase of uh, raw materials like soybeans and iron ore, all kinds of things. Of course, Brazil has also benefited from Chinese investment and China's market access. Well, on the global stage, I think there are also many, many, many areas for cooperation. Apart from the so-called uh, uh, international order based on international laws, the two countries can cooperate on, on global governance in terms of global trade governance, global financial governance, global climate governance, global cybersecurity governance. Well, the two countries can cooperate. And uh, they can also cooperate uh, in the field of reforms. The United Nations Security Council, uh, Brazil, wants to become a permanent member of the UN Security Council. China supports Brazil's uh, intention to play a more important role in the UN framework as long as mm, this kind of uh, reforms can promote world peace and development. So I think that in the near future, uh, China's relationship with Brazil will continue to move forward. And don't forget that this year, Brazil chairs the rotating presidency of the G20. So there will be a G20 summit. And uh, I'm, I'm sure Chinese President Xi Jinping will go to attend uh, this uh, G20 summit. Uh, sometime in the year. Uh, and, uh, well, in the G20 framework, as well as in the BRICS framework, the two countries have so many common grounds and common positions on many of the international issues. That is Jiang Shixue, Distinguished Professor of the College of International Relations at Sichuan International Studies University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell has accused Israel of financing Hamas. His remarks contradict Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has denied the allegations. Opponents of the Israeli government have accused Netanyahu of boosting Gaza ruler Hamas for years. The accusers, including some global media, have also claimed Netanyahu's government allowed Qatari financing of Gaza. Burrell added that the only peaceful solution to the conflict includes the creation of a Palestinian state. For more, we are now joined on the line by Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Rawal Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what, what do you make of Joseph Burrell's accusation that um, Israel has financed the creation of Hamas? Is there any evidence supporting that argument? Well, that accusation is not new. It has been walking around uh, the political circles um, globally, actually, and in the global media for a very long time now. Um, the arguments uh, are supported by indirect evidence only. Of course, there is no direct evidence that has been released or somehow got public. 
um, of uh, the policies that Netanyahu have uh, supported during his uh, tenure as Prime Minister of Israel, during all his tenures, that was directed after um, the Israel left um, Gaza district, um, that uh, it, Israel was financing uh, Hamas indirectly um, and its operations uh, to take over the um, responsibilities as the authority uh, in Gaza um, in order to uh, make a rift between um, the political leadership of Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Well, Burrell has also criticized Netanyahu for personally derailing attempts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How do you look at this? Um, there is a growing concern with, uh, with how Netanyahu is handling uh, the military operation in Gaza. And I think this is the reflection of that. What Boro is basically saying, again, this is criticism is not new. What's new is that it's uh, being spoken to the um, Prime Minister of Israel at such a high level of, of from the European Union. Yeah. I think this is the um, pressure that the European Union is trying to apply because it doesn't like where the policies that ne Netanyahu is right now implementing in terms of military operation and then the outlook on post-military operation and the, um, uh, Netanyahu's um, uh, policy that basically denies the Palestinians uh, their state and the two-state solution. Um, all that is a concern for the EU, and that's the expression of that. So that is where the criticism is originating from. Yes, and it is reported that the EU has urged member states to impose consequences on Israel if Netanyahu continues to oppose Palestinian statehood as uh, EU foreign ministers meet on Monday to discuss this issue. Uh, but any idea what consequences are being discussed and what leverage does the EU have to step up pressure on Israel? There is certainly a wide range of consequences is, that is being discussed on the EU level. Um, I would uh, guess, of course, there is no public data about that. But when such meetings are adjourned, uh, there is everything from milder measures um, like um, the condemnation on the both EU level, but also on the membership, uh, membership uh, state level. And then there is, of course, the range can extend to uh, sanctions, to... Uh, to trade policies that would uh, disfavor Israel, because that's one of the leverages that EU has in terms of economy. Uh, and Israel is very connected uh, in its um, trade partnerships, uh, not only with the United States, but with EU as well. So uh, there's also energy sector questions uh, that can be raised and the policies um, of the Mediterranean, because there are a lot of EU states that uh, are Mediterranean uh, states and can influence um, uh, the Israel's decisions economically. So there are a lot of that kind of um, uh, discussions around what the EU can concretely do. But mostly it's, of course, the questions of lowering the state of relations and maybe economic sanctions in the longer term. Okay, but with the rising civilian death toll from the conflict in Gaza, how does the EU view this role in promoting long-term peace in the region? 
I think what the EU is trying to um, to do right now is to support the United States policy towards the resolution uh, <clears throat> towards the resolution of the conflict, and that means that the EU is going to be aligning uh, its role with that of the United States because the United States presence in the conflict resolution has a much longer history and it's also much more involved. So in this sense, the EU is going to be um, playing like this more secondary role uh, in applying the secondary pressure on Israel uh, to accept a two-state solution and to decrease uh, the military toll, uh, the military toll on civilian uh, population in Gaza. So those two um, two lines are going to be intersected there. But what the EU is also going to be doing is probably providing some kind of incentive to both sides to arrive to the two-state solutions in this sense, supporting economically the restoration of Gaza and at the same time maybe uh, wiggling the economic carrot uh, to the Israel uh, in terms of a positive sentiment. Well, Netanyahu has reiterated his stance on maintaining security control over the entire area west of Jordan River after a call with U.S. President Joe Biden. So what do you make of the role of the United States in influencing Israel's position? I'm sure that the U.S. is right now going to be struggling with applying pressure to um, Benjamin Netanyahu policies. I think the United States is right, try, right now trying to de-escalate the situation as much as possible because it's not interested in uh, the situation getting out of control or the Middle East uh, turning into the theater of a regional war. Um, and that is the long-term plan for the United States, not to uh, let this uh, escalate out uh, of proportion and to contain the conflict as much as possible. Uh, why is that? It's, it's because... Uh, Right now, the United States is trying to strategically um, uh, bounce back in terms of the economy and lower the uh, inflation pressure, and the war in the Middle East is just going to increase the economical risks. And for the United States, that is a, a bad scenario, simply. Um, but what is happening right now is with also with uh, all the... Um, aside, so to say, and even the non-state uh, groups you know, being actively opposed to the United States and its agenda, mm-hmm. also supporting Palestine. It's, yeah. Yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Kamal Makili Aliyev. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. In the United States, Ron DeSantis has suspended his campaign for president, endorsing Donald Trump as the Republican nominee for the White House. The Florida governor announced his decision in a social media video on Sunday, suggesting he didn't have a clear path to victory. His departure from the race comes two days before the New Hampshire primary, which will now be a clear two-person race between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Haley finished in a disappointing third place in the Iowa caucuses last week, narrowly edged out by DeSantis. She is betting on a coalition of more moderate Republicans and independent voters to beat Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hun. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Zhao Ying. So what do you think in the eyes of DeSantis? He didn't have a clear path to victory. Well, in Iowa, he was some 30 percentage points behind Donald Trump. And also, if he was to participate in this upcoming New Hampshire primary, 
he would, according to opinion polls, face a likely blowout by both Trump and Nikki Haley. Iowa was supposed to be a make-or-break place for DeSantis because his campaign has invested heavily there. He has toured almost all the 99 counties over there, and his allied super PAC, an organization called Never Back Down, has actually spent tens of millions of U.S. dollars knocking on you know, door-to-door um, -door on the part of local voters over there. His ground game included as many as 1,500 officers who helped establish a direct link between DeSantis and local voters. However, like I said earlier, despite that very heavy focus on Iowa, he still lost to Trump by such a high margin. So there is a legitimate concern about his ability to project, say, viability moving forward, which I guess is why there were signs of uh, collapse uh, of his campaign after January the 15th, the Iowa caucuses. He has actually, according to media reports, raised enough money to at least campaign until the South Carolina primary in late February. However, since the Iowa caucuses, pro-DeSantis groups have spent less than $100,000 on advertisements. By comparison, those pro-Nikki Haley groups, for example, have spent more than $7.8 million. Well, but we know that about a year ago, DeSantis appeared to be the best-positioned Republican to take on Trump. He won re-election as Florida governor in the 2022 midterm elections, with voters there rewarding him for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. So with that in mind, why has his presidential campaign gradually lost momentum since then? Uh, I think one way to think about this question is how Republicans have really increasingly rallied around Donald Trump, especially after some U.S. state or federal prosecutors launched those, you know, criminal cases against the former president, including those charges alleging that Trump attempted to overrun the 2020 election results. Some people say DeSantis is a victim of the circumstances because all those legal actions targeting Donald Trump seem to have really you know, shore up and fire up his, his base and motivated those Trump supporters to contribute, to come out and then vote for Trump. But in the meantime, on the part of the census himself, uh, there is no denying he made a lot of uh, missteps as well. For example, his campaign has had a poor management of this money issue. Uh, for example, it hired dozens of staffers in the very early stages of the race, using up the much-needed early cash very soon. Then, within the first two months, 40% of those initial hires were fired in order to uh, consume, uh, consume or conserve uh, resources. This problem regarding cash, for example, then elevated the role of uh, never back down, this particular super PAC had to take much of the traditional roles of the campaign, like fundraising and travel organization, etc., etc. So such a scenario then raised the questions about its legality, because a super PAC is supposed to be independent. It just cannot legally co uh, cooperate or coordinate with a campaign. Then there were problems regarding the timing as well, because 
DeSantis really waited for six months after his landslide uh, re-election victory uh, over there in Florida at the governor level to announce his run for the U.S. president. A lot of momentum was lost during that very long period. And also in Florida, he has actually put just too much focus and emphasis on cultural war fights on issues like uh, gender identity or sexual orientation, which ended up costing him a substantial amount of donor support. Well, but we know that when Donald Trump was the president, DeSantis was nicknamed a mini Trump governor. So are you surprised that he has endorsed Donald Trump? Uh, no surprise, fairly speaking. Uh, if you recall, during those you know public debates in the days leading up to the Iowa caucuses, he actually reserved some of his most ugly, harshest personal attack comments for Nikki Haley rather than for Donald Trump. Um, of course, he has accused Trump of failing to deliver on his 2016 or 2020 campaign promises like uh, failing failure of building a wall along the southern border with Mexico. Another accusation from the census is that Trump has been distracted by all those criminal charges against him. But really, if you think about those criticism, they are very, very soft because DeSantis doesn't really dare to offend or anger those uh, diehard uh, Trump supporters who have previously voted for Donald Trump twice. Of course, one thing people are watching right now is whether he will serve Donald Trump's running mate if he is offered by by Donald Trump this uh, access to this opportunity. Um, that would make him the vice president if Donald Trump is elected once again. He has previously said that he wouldn't serve on this particular position, but um, I think right now the current scenario is really stirring up a lot of you know, wild gas or imagination in this particular regard. Well, what does this mean to the New Hampshire primary? Um, uh, you know... Of course, this is a significant blow to Nikki Haley uh, because really the latest opinion poll shows that Donald Trump commands the support of just under 49% of likely primary votes compared to those for Haley at about 34%. So really, I think the chance is very small for Haley to be able to beat Trump because over the past century, uh, past half a century rather, no candidate who won both Iowa and New Hampshire has failed to secure their party's presidential nomination. Uh, of course, this is a historical perspective. But having said that, in Iowa, we can say that Donald Trump has given a full play to his strength among the uh, evangelicals and rural conservatives. But New Hampshire over there, there is a slightly different situation because local voters uh, pride themselves on a kind of independent spectrum. They are generally uh, richer, more educated, and less religious. And voters who are registered without a party affiliation represent some 40% of the local electorate. These people are are able to cast a Republican primary uh, vote. So in general, they are more moderate than those those voters in Iowa. So that's why I think, uh, that's why some people say New Hampshire could be the last chance for Republicans to beat Donald Trump. So let's see what will happen. Okay, Binghang, thanks for joining us. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back.
This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. U.S. lawmakers have banned the Defense Department from buying batteries made by China's biggest manufacturers. The rule is part of the latest National Defense Authorization Act passed in December. It will prevent purchases from six Chinese companies, including CATL and BYD, starting from October 2027. The measure doesn't extend to commercial purchases. For more, we are now joined on the line by Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So, what do you think is behind this decision to prevent the Defense Department from purchasing batteries from certain Chinese companies?、Um, do you think this is a solely a national security concern, or other broader economic and geopolitical motivations at play? Well, I think it is certainly framed as a national security issue, but I think the reality is that this is、uh, inexpensive political signaling by members of Congress, meaning that they get the benefit of sounding tough on China with no real cost to themselves in the short term, and I think the intention is to. Gain some visibility, gain some recognition that can help、uh, with elections. And we have to remember that members of Congress、uh, are never stop running for office because they、uh, are on two-year terms. And it's not only fighting for votes, but perhaps more importantly, fighting for money. So keeping in the public eye, being able to say, "Here's what I've accomplished," even though the accomplishment is、uh, making a, a negative statement about China. Uh, can be politically valuable, but I think the problem here, though, is that this could have very real repercussions on the ability、uh, of the armed forces in the United States、uh, to operate effectively. Uh, but to what extent is this ban a, a practical measure versus a symbolic gesture, and, and how does that fit into the broader effort to decouple from China? Well, that's the whole point, right? So、um, again, it's、um, inexpensive political、uh, signaling, but it might have a very real economic impact because、uh, this industry is very dependent on economies of scale. Meaning, the more you produce,、uh, the cheaper per unit the product is. There are also gains from specialization. So that if you have more, if you sell more, you manufacture more, you become better at it. So not only do you deliver at a lower cost, but you also deliver at a higher quality. So again, what can be the practical impact of this is this may actually undermine、uh, the operational readiness of of the U.S. armed forces. Okay.、Uh, actually, among the top ten battery suppliers globally, only three are non-Chinese. So, how does this reality impact the Defense Department's ability to diversify its sources and mitigate dependence on Chinese manufacturers? Right. So, again, you know, it, the, the the devil's in the details.、Um, but you know, one question, of course, one can ask is: Can these other suppliers? Uh, deliver the quantity necessary.、Uh, can they deliver at similar prices? And it certainly seems possible、uh, that they would be more expensive again、uh, because the, the larger players have
cost advantages. And then we also then have to consider the, uh, the impact on potential disruption uh, on changing uh, inputs, batteries in this instance, um, that this potentially could cause disruption uh, as well. So there's lots of question marks, I think. Well, it is said that the measure does not extend to commercial purchases. Uh, but do you think this could potentially impact uh, the commercial electric industry as well, given the prominent role of Chinese battery companies? Well, it certainly is possible as well, because, again, this is uh, political signaling. And the signal that I think uh, very reasonably would be drawn by the Chinese companies here is that they are not welcome in the United States. So certainly, uh, you know, that's not a positive. So we have to wait and see, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, to what extent do you think uh, these Chinese battery manufacturers will be affected by this ban? Well, hard to say because, um, again, you know, what I think we've also seen is that workarounds are always possible. We have to look at how uh, these regulations are actually drafted, how they are implemented. And we've certainly seen uh, instances where Uh, despite the stated intention of certain entities in the United States to, quote-unquote, decouple from China, uh, they've discovered in practice that it actually is not possible. You know, one of the most relevant examples of this is Raytheon, uh, which is one of the major uh, defense contractors in the United States. Uh, Their CEO uh, last year said that uh, they cannot, decouple from China. They have thousands of suppliers, you know, which sounds very ironic. Um, so, you know, again, the actual impact on these Chinese companies, I think, remain to be seen. But it's unfortunate because this kind of signaling just, uh, you know, undermines the sentiment, which on the one hand, we know that uh, the Biden administration is looking to stabilize and even improve ties with China. Uh, so this also, in a way, undercuts this effort as well. Okay, but w- what signal does it send to other countries, especially uh, those U.S. allies? Uh, will more countries follow suit, or will more countries be forced to follow suit? Yeah, I think, you know, we have to see here, because, you know, on the one hand, certainly uh, American allies, uh, other countries that uh, are aligned with the United States, certainly do feel pressure to follow along. But at the same time, we've also seen uh, that it's increasingly important uh, for them to consider their own uh, interests, both politically as well as uh, economically as well. And again, we have to recognize here that in these situations um, that Chinese suppliers are not only uh, providing uh, high quality but also a very competitive price. Mm. So any changes here uh, could lower quality and raise costs. So neither of which uh, I think any company or any government really wants to see. Thank you, Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. This is World Today. Stay with us.
China's Ministry of Industry and Information Technology says industrial output grew 4.6% year-on-year in 2023, and China has retained its position as the world's biggest manufacturer for the 14th consecutive year. Official data shows the electric machinery and vehicle manufacturing industry recorded double-digit growth last year. China made this and sold 30 million cars and exported more than 4 million of them, becoming the world's largest auto exporter in 2023. Meanwhile, revenue from telecom services grew by 6.2 percent, emerging as a crucial economic driver. China has built over 3 million 5G base stations and is now the world's second-largest computing power. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, China's industrial output grew by 4.6 percent year on year in 2023. What does it say about China's industrial economy? We know that China is a manufacturing country, so we are good at producing the industrial products. I would say that in the past、uh, maybe 14 or even longer years, China has been working so hard to improve our capacities of of producing the manufacturing products, which are ranging from the you know, the daily used products to the what we use for the industries. So I I, I can see that the capacity is still enhanced in the recent years. Which is a very important competitiveness for China and also benefits the world.、Mm. And after the U.S. decoupling, de-risking approach towards China, what's China's current role in the global supply chain? Do you think? Yeah, I think it has changed a little bit because yet many countries are reconsidering about the supply chains between China, United States, and themselves. So we are still trying to figure out this fact that who can provide the products if China cannot provide. I don't think that there are enough、uh, suppliers of those countries who can do the same job. Well, it may be the truth that some of the ASEAN countries can produce、uh, some of the textiles, the shoes, and some of the beddings usage. And、uh, but for other many kind of area, I still see that China is very capable of doing that. Well, in this regard, I would still argue that China and the United States we are still in contact. So you can find the work groups. Between us, between our two governments, are still discussing some of the problems. How can we improve the more predictability of of the trade between us? So、uh, it's a really a, a change in the in the recent years. But I still have a a kind of confidence that the world is、uh, trying to be good, and China's manufacturing are still very important.、Mm. And last year, China made and sold 30 million cars, export more than 4 million of them, as the world's largest auto exporter in the year 2023. So, what factors have contributed to it, and what makes China's EV industry so competitive on the global market? Yeah, I think that is,、uh, you know,、uh, two folds of this question. The first one is、uh, the cars making. Well, China is、uh, traditionally is a very important manufacturing of the cars in the past decades. That we are producing many cars, but we are not export so many cars to other countries. Well, in recent years, I think that some elements, including the the green energy, the related lithium batteries, and this kind of、uh, elements has put China in one of the most competitive ways of Providing those products, well, you can find that the designs of the EVs are so different. 
development in China, and they are changing very quickly according to the demands of the consumers. Well, it has many of potentials to adapt to the local market, to the consumers in the local countries in other countries. Well, this is uh, quite different uh, compared with some of the traditional car providers. So I, I do believe that with a systematic ways of uh, building cars, of selling cars, and also providing the services, the China's uh, manufactured uh, the EVs could be more competitive in the coming future. Mm. And as you mentioned, the EV lithium battery and also the solar panel exports surpassed 1 trillion yuan or 140 billion US dollars last year. So what do you make of China's green trails and how competitive is the solar panel industry? What kind of international environment does it face? Yeah, actually, when you mentioned these three very important products, I would say that they are related with each other. For the lithium, they are the you know the energy provider of the EVs. Well, for the solar panels, they may be another ways of providing electricity we gathering from the sunshine. So I, I think that there are so many countries are trying to transfer from the traditional ways of using the fossil fuels into the alternatives or renewable energies. In the past decades, there, there are so many innovations, but many of them are based on the academic research. Well, China has produced a, a little bit uh, more opportunities for those innovations into the practices. So it can be used in the in our daily lives, which is very important for so many countries because not every country can do that. So we have uh, you know, used our manufacturing abilities and the logistics and also a uh, large scale of the market to trying to combine those elements together to providing a uh, one-way solutions for all of this uh, the transfer to the new energy. I think that uh, the world needs that. And uh, after we have made so many promises by all the governments, I, I mean, all the governments are trying to figure out uh, the path to lead to their promises. And that is by the trade. And mm. even in the future, by the investment from Chinese enterprises, they can try to contribute to the change to the new energy. Mm. And telecom service revenue grew by 6.2% last year, emerging as a crucial economic driver. China has established over 3 million 5G base stations and is now ranked as the world's second largest computing power. And China has companies like Huawei. So how could this help China's economic transition and sustain that growth momentum? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the the solutions for China's own market is trying to have a better connections in China, the wireless connections. And the 5G stations and those kind of applications are providing us of the better interactions between the new energy vehicles on the road and also uh, for the better connections in the factories. So I think that for the Internet of Things, the IOTs can provide us with more possibilities when we can do that things from distantly. I, 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 be, I believe that this is a kind of uh, you know reality we want to, to reach to improve the efficiency of the digital trade and the digital economy. Well, uh, it is not so easy to expand to the world because there are still many arguments from uh, some countries like the United States, they are arguing that there are some of the uh, not so safety of using those equipment. But I don't think that without enough market integration, without enough applications, that one technology can be 
can be uh, even better used. So in this world, we are facing many challenges, while the digital transformation will be definitely one of the very important momentum and that is helpful for us to reduce, uh, you know, the, the disinformation uh, or, or actual cost of using that. The digital economy is the area is coming. So we have to be better prepared to the, the future for some kind of uh, risks that may, maybe we cannot tackle with enough applications. Mm, and for foreign investment last year, despite the overall decrease in FDI, there was a significant increase of nearly 40% in the number of newly established foreign invested enterprises. So could you tell us more about that? We know that uh, enterprises or investors, they are looking at the potentials of the, you know, the profits, not only in just one year, but maybe they are seeing a little bit longer. Like for the manufacturing investments, they will see that they may have some more time in building their factories. So they are expecting a better return for the coming five years or even 10 years. Well, China is uh, such a promising market that many companies see there are so many opportunities because the Chinese government is not only trying to stay there and waiting for everything to happen naturally, they are creating more support to open the market, to uh, improve the infrastructure environment, to make the policies even more preferential, to trying to use the international collaboration on the governance, on the trade and investment agreements. So I, I think that has uh, brought a lot of uh, confidence to the enterprises. So many foreign investors come here to China, not only from the Western countries, but also from many developing countries and emerging economies. They are hoping that they can benefit a lot by investing here, but they are still more expected about the the relation between China and their own countries. So with the investment, the trade relation will be enhanced, and that is a kind of a very important thing in the, such an uncertain world with so many challenges. That's Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with Zhao Yang. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,